Well, if you would, open your Bibles first to Acts chapter 8. Cheryl first told me we had the pool reserved at 3 o'clock. I thought, wow, i got plenty of time to preach. And then I was reminded of a true story Todd and I were told about a pastor. He was telling Todd, he said, Oh, he said, recently, he said, I've had so much liberty and power in preaching. I'm preaching 45 minutes to an hour every time. And Todd said, that's too long. And the pastor said, no. He said, the people are telling me how blessed they are by it, how much they love it. And Todd said, they're lying to you. That's too long. (laughs) So I'll keep it down. (laughs) But beginning here at Acts chapter 8, at the beginning of the chapter, we won't read all the verses, but there was a great revival going on in Samaria. Philip was there preaching, and a great revival. Many people believed. And wouldn't we all love to be there? That revival was going on. All those people coming to know the Lord, the, the powerful preaching of the apostles. And while that's going on, the Lord calls Philip out of that place. Cause him to leave that revival and go out into the desert. Now, why on earth would he send his apostle away from this revival out into the desert? Because the Lord had a lost sheep out there in the desert. That's where all his sheep are lost. They're all lost out in the desert. And his appointed time to hear the gospel and come to know the Lord Jesus Christ had come. Now, would God really Send one of his choice preachers out to the desert to preach to just one? Couldn't he have sent, you know, some flunky guy? Philip? Yes, he would. And I know at least one man that is eternally thankful he did. Well, would God really send his gospel to a little town in West Virginia and pass all these other big cities by? Would he really do that? Yes, he would. And I know some people who are eternally thankful. That's what he does. And here in Acts chapter 8, verse 26, is where we're going to pick up. The angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south, unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem, unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia an eunuch of great authority under Candice, queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasure, and had come to Jerusalem for to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot, read Isaiah the prophet. Now this man, I know this about him. He was a sinner seeking the Savior. He went from Ethiopia clear to Jerusalem for to worship. He was seeking the Lord. But he left just as empty as when he got there. Because when he got to Jerusalem, all he found was religious ceremony without Christ. That's all he found. He was leaving just as empty as when he got there. But he had obtained something priceless. He had obtained the Word of God, probably in a scroll, and he was reading it on his way home. Now, when you find a man or a woman who's beginning to read Scripture, just wait and watch. Could be. The Lord's getting ready to move in mercy because he reveals himself through his word. This man had obtained the word of God, the gospel, according to Isaiah. 
In verse 29, the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah. There could have been other men with him, someone driving the chariot and other people there maybe with him, a few. And he was reading aloud the prophet Isaiah. And Philip said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I? Except some man should guide me. And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. Now this eunuch was somebody. This man was educated. He probably knew several different languages. He knew the, the language of the, the Hebrews. He could read Isaiah. He's from Ethiopia, so he had to know multiple languages. He's educated. He had worldly power and was a trustworthy man. He had charge of all the treasure of the queen of Ethiopia. He must have been a trustworthy man. Educated, smart, intelligent. But he could not understand what he was reading. I heard Henry say one time, don't be offended if someone asks you if you understand God's word. And I would add, don't pretend you do understand when you don't. Because men by nature cannot understand God's word. The natural man receiveth not the things of God, or the things of the Spirit of God, for their foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them. It's impossible for him to understand because they're spiritually discerned. The Lord must reveal these things. So, of course, he didn't understand what he was reading. But God sent him a preacher. And God sends his preachers as guides. Guides in the Word of God. Guides to guide sinners to Christ the Savior. So, verse 32, the place of the Scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb, dumb before his shearer, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation... His judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this? Of himself or some other man? Now the whole Bible is about a person. It's a person. The Bible is not a history lesson. The Bible doesn't give us a law or rule to live by. The Bible is not a doctrinal dissertation so we can get all our doctrinal ducks in a row. The Bible is about a person. The message of the Bible is a person. The Word of God is a person. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And if you find that person, you'll find salvation. You find the person that this Bible speaks of, and you'll find eternal life. And that's why the eunuch asked. It's a good question. Tell me who this is talking about. Because if he can find out who this is talking about, he'll find eternal life. And Philip opened his mouth and began at that same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. Now, Philip preached unto him Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. Philip did not preach doctrinal steps that you need to follow in order to be saved. He did not preach to this man how he could live a better Christian life. He didn't preach unto him the way of the Jews. He didn't preach unto him the Calvinistic way. He preached unto him a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we don't have Philip's outline. have no idea the different points and things that Philip said in his message. But I know some things he likely said. Henry said one time, everybody would like to hear this message of Philip. And Henry said, it's a good thing you don't because you'd have gone to hell trusting in Philip instead of trusting in Christ. 
But if you've been around here long enough, you've heard this message. The message hasn't changed. Now look over in Isaiah 53. Let's look at some things that Philip could have told this eunuch. He could have told this eunuch, first of all, about the holy God. Now the natural man has devised in his mind a God who's not holy, he's not sovereign, he's impotent. And the God that's devised in the mind of natural man is a God who will overlook sin and is just begging people to accept him, to invite him into their hearts. And Philip could have told that eunuch, that God is not the God of the book you're reading. He's not God at all. The God of the Bible, the true and living God, is holy. Now, that's his chief attribute is his holiness. And whatever God does must be holy. God is love. People all, God is love. Yes, he is love, but he must show that way in a manner that's holy, in a manner that's consistent with his holiness. Yes, God is merciful, but he must show that mercy in a holy fashion. And you know... I thought of this this morning. I'll go over my notes. People talk about God is love. God is... And you know, you never hear them say God is just. He is. And God will show that justice in a holy way. No one in hell is in hell right now for something they did not do. It's done in a holy way. Everything God does is holy. The passage that this man is reading describes a man suffering for sin. Horrible suffering is described in this text. He's being punished fully for sin. Even though, we'll see this as we go, he never committed a sin personally, but God's punishing him with wrath and fury because he was made to be guilty of the sins of somebody else. He could have told this eunuch about the God who is holy. Second, I'm pretty confident that he told this eunuch about the total depravity of all men. Now, this passage the eunuch is reading speaks of someone being punished for sins. Well, those sins were not his own. They were the sins of somebody else. And those people are people who are so sinful, they're totally depraved. They're totally, completely sinful. Everything they do is sin. That's the people for whom Christ died. The chapter begins, Who hath believed our report? Now we preach a message of God's love in Christ Jesus. We don't preach a message telling people you can't come to Christ. We preach a message of God's love in Christ Jesus. We preach a message of peace. We preach a message of forgiveness of sins. We preach a message of grace and mercy in Christ. We preach a message of true salvation, a salvation that will truly save your soul. And so few people believe it. So few. What's the name of the football coach at West Virginia? If that fellow was here this morning, this place would be packed, but not to hear the gospel. Few people believe it. Our message is the message of God's own Son. His person, his work, his righteousness, his obedience, his suffering, his substitutionary death, salvation that's in him, life that's in him. It's a good report. 
This is a true report. It's a faithful report. It's a report that deserves to be believed. And it's a report everyone needs. There's not a soul in this world that doesn't need this message, this gospel. Yet it's depressing how few people believe it. I mean, I, I, I weep that so few people believe it. And I know why they don't believe it. They're depraved. They're dead in trespasses and sin. That's why they don't believe it. And I know we ought not get depressed. I know we ought not get discouraged. And you're right, we ought not be discouraged. I know this. I, you know, I preach not being defeated that people aren't going to believe it. You ought to believe this. I believe. As I preach, you ought to believe this. And I preach knowing God's elect are going to hear. They're going to believe it. They're going to love the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not defeated. We're victorious. But it still saddens me. Even as we're victorious, it saddens me to think of the people that I have preached to. Looked them right in the face and preached Christ Jesus to them. And at this very moment, they're in hell. It saddens me. You can't truly preach the gospel unless you love people. And Philip must have loved people because he ran to that eunuch to preach the gospel of Christ to him. But we're going to preach a gospel to a people that are totally depraved. Look in verse 3. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Light shined in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. We esteemed him not. We didn't esteem the Lord Jesus Christ when he came as God's son. And people do the same thing today with his gospel when it's preached. Because nothing about the gospel appeals to the flesh. Because the gospel, if it's preached right, puts the flesh in the dust where it belongs. The gospel, if it's preached right, declares to men we are completely sinful, incapable of pleasing God. We're dead and completely dependent upon Christ to save, and nobody in the flesh wants to be dependent on anybody else. But that's what the gospel declares. And when the Savior appeared, the Jews of his day hid their eyes from him. And we do the same thing in the flesh when the gospel's preached. It's just like children, you know, they just hide their eyes. And if you know, I don't see you, you don't see me. You know, they're hiding their eyes from me. Have you ever been out in public, Walmart, going down the aisle, and you see somebody at the end of the aisle, and you think, oh, I don't want to see them. And you kind of turn your eye, hope, you know, I can pretend I didn't see them. They don't see me. We don't have to talk to one another. You see them coming down the street, and I'm across the street, pretend like I, I go over here, you know, and you, so you can avoid seeing them. We've all done that. In the flesh, that's what we do when the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is preached. We turn our head. We, if I don't see him, he don't see me. He sees. He sees. But we do that because we're totally depraved. Look at verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is what we're full of, is iniquity. And this sheep going astray is not an ignorant sheep wandering off because he doesn't know any better. This is willful 
disobedience. We got two dogs. We take them on a walk. You got to have them dogs on a leash. One of them especially will run away. You can call his name. You can chase after him. Dogs can hear things. Human beings can't hear at all. But now you let loose of that leash, that dog can't hear you a bit. He's willful disobedience. That's what we are by nature. Going off our own way instead of going God's way. We do that because we're totally depraved. I'm pretty confident Philip covered that subject with this eunuch. Third, Philip could have talked to this man about unconditional election. Who hath believed our report, Isaiah said? Well, he answers his own question within his question. And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Revealed. Who's believed our report? Well, you show me to whom the arm of the Lord is revealed, and I'll show you who believed our report. The arm of the Lord is the Lord Jesus Christ. David said in Psalm 98, His right hand and his holy arm hath gotten him the victory. Well, just the same as Isaiah 53, David's talking about a person. The arm of the Lord is the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ and his gospel must be revealed. You can't educate somebody into it. You can't beat it into their heads. It's got to be revealed. If God does not reveal his son to us, we'll never know him, we'll never love him, we'll never seek him, we'll never see him. But the people who love this message are the people to whom God, in mercy and grace, has revealed his son. And this revelation is the work of God. Now, men can't figure it out. If you're as educated as this eunuch, you cannot figure it out. And you cannot and will not decide to accept it. It must be revealed. Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed that unto thee, but who? My Father, which is in heaven. He's the one that's revealed that to you. In our preacher's school, Todd Nybert does, he made a statement, and this is a true statement. One of the most important things at preaching is time in prayer. You can come up with the most eloquent outline that has ever escaped man's lips. And if God doesn't bless it, it's just words. Just words in the air. Our Father, which is in heaven, must reveal it. Look over at John chapter 6. It must be revealed. Verse 41, the Jews then murmured at him because he said, I'm the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then he saith, I came down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, murmur not among yourselves. No man can come to me. That's our total depravity. No man can come to me except the father which has sent me drawing, and I'll raise him up at the last day. It's written in the prophets. This is not a new message. It's written in the prophets. And they shall be all taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. Well, who is these people that are taught of the Father? Who are these people that the Father reveals the Son to? It's his elect. It's those that he draws. And he does what he does for his elect. Gives them life, calls them to come to Christ. 
Fourth, Philip could have told this eunuch, and I'm confident of this because this is the very words he was reading when Philip came up to his chariot. The Savior that God reveals is the suffering Savior. Suffering Savior. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ is God's Son. And the Word, God's own Son, was made flesh, made human flesh, and dwelt among us. He became the God-man. And from cradle to grave, the Lord Jesus was a man of suffering. You think how he suffered to humiliate himself and clothe himself in human flesh so he could be our substitute. That was humiliation. In verse 2, this is what he's talking about here in verse 2. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Now God's son was born a helpless, dependent baby. Can't explain that. (laughs) It's just so. Just one of those things you believe. And you could have snuffed out his life with your thumb. It's so easily, just like you could kill a stalk of corn when it first pops through the ground. That thing's so tender, it's so fragile, you just kick a dirt clot on top of it or break it and kill it. It's so fragile. Life himself was born as a fragile baby whose life could have just been snuffed out. He was born as our substitute. So he was born with the same limitations every one of us have. Now, I know he worked miracles and we, that we cannot work, but he never worked those miracles for the benefit of himself. It was always for the benefit of others. As far as what he would do for himself, he had the same limitations that we had, have right now. He'd born flesh. The Old Testament scriptures prophesied of the Messiah. And how would he come? as the root of Jesse, as the root of David. I'll raise up unto David a rod, a branch. Well, the house of David had sunk so low. King David now, his house had sunk so low that it was just a dry root, hidden underground. There was nothing above the ground. There was no growth, all root under dry, arid ground. And out of that root that everybody thought was dead, a sprig sprung to life. That's the humble beginnings of God's Son. And he was a real man. This verse speaks of his real humanity. He didn't look like the Son of God to the natural man. He didn't go around with a halo over his head or, you know, this glow kind of behind his head all the time. He was a natural man, a real man. We just read those people, they watched him grow up. They said, what's he talking about? Isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? We know all about him. We've seen him. Don't tell me anything new about him. I know everything there is to know about him. Imagine the suffering our Lord endured growing up surrounded by all that sin and unbelief, growing up in the dung heap that we talked about earlier, Psalm 113. Yet he came. Well, why did he come? Why did this suffering Savior come? To suffer. He came to establish righteousness for his people, and he came to suffer the full wrath of God for their sins. That's what what this eunuch was reading. Look at verse 4. Surely 
He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was the Jews that watched Jesus of Nazareth on that cross. They esteemed that man forsaken of God. They esteemed that man as being punished for his sins. And in a sense, they were right. He wa- they were exactly right when they esteemed him forsaken of God. He was forsaken of God. The father turned his back on his son and forsook him as he hung there between heaven and earth, suffering for the sins of his people. And he was being punished, but not for his sins, for the sins of someone else laid to his account, imputed to him. He bore our griefs. That word griefs is diseases. It's sicknesses. He bore our sin sicknesses in his body on the tree. Now, can you try to imagine the horror that he suffered, the holy, perfect Son of God, the horror he suffered when he took the sins of his people into his body on the tree? Oh, my soul. He he bore those sicknesses for us. And he carried our sorrows. Look over in Lamentations chapter 1. He carried our sorrows. That's all the pain and the suffering that our sins deserve. And honestly and truly, we can't imagine the suffering, the depths of the suffering he endured when he carried our sorrows. In verse 12 of Lamentations chapter 1, Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? Behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow, which is done unto me, wherewith the Lord hath afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger. That's the holy God afflicting him for the sins that were charged to him. No man ever suffered sorrows like our substitute suffered as he hung there being made sin for his people. In verse 5, Isaiah goes on. He says, but he was wounded for our transgressions, not his, for ours. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes were healed. Now this word wounded there is tormented. He was tormented for the transgressions of his people. Torment. You know, it's not just an execution where they lop off your head and it's instant and it's done. He was tormented. He suffered. And he was bruised for our iniquities. That word bruised is crushed. He was crushed like a grape is crushed to get the wine out of it. He was crushed for the iniquities of his people. The bruising that his body suffered as he was beaten, the bruising that he endured is a picture of the bruising of his soul when the Father made his soul an offering for sin. He was tormented, crushed, both body and soul, for the sins of his people. And those griefs that he carried, those griefs that he bore, those diseases... The only way a sinner can be cured of our sin sickness. And this sin sickness is not just like a cold. You'll get over it. This sin sickness is a fatal disease. Sin, when it's finished, bringeth forth death. It's a fatal disease. And the only way a sinner can be cured of this sin sickness is for Christ to suffer in our place. 
to take our disease into his healthy, perfect body on the tree and to cleanse us with his own precious blood. By his stripes, by his bruising, by him taking our sins and iniquities and diseases into his body on the tree, we are healed. Healed. That's how we're healed. By him suffering as a substitute in our place. And he suffered so greatly for this reason. The Father made him to be sin. Look at verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord made the iniquity of all of his people to meet on the head of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Father made him guilty. And he suffered. He suffered the full penalty of the broken law. And this suffering Savior is the silent Savior. Look at verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the shearer, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. Our Lord Jesus went to the cross willingly. He didn't go because that mob came and tied his hands and drug him off. He went willingly. He went who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. He went willingly to the shearers to be stripped of everything. He went to those shears to be stripped naked before men, and worse yet, naked before God, without a covering, naked. He went willingly, not just to the shearers, you know, they shear off the wool and it'll grow back. He went willingly to the butchers to be butchered. His body was butchered for the sins of his people, just butchered, knowing that would happen. He went willingly. No man taketh my life from me. I lay it down. I lay it down on myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. He went. He was in control. He was in control of everything that happened there. Despite his suffering, he was in control. He went willingly. Now, why didn't he cry? Stop. I'm not guilty. Stop. These men who are witnessing against me, they're bearing false witness. Stop. Because he was guilty. He was guilty. I can't explain that. It's just so. He was guilty. The sinless Son of God became guilty. Even though he never committed a sin personally, he was guilty. And that suffering Savior actually died. The Prince of Life died in a violent way. Look at verse 8. He was taken from prison and from judgment. Who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. He died. They took a lifeless body down from that cross and laid in a tomb. He's dead. That body was dead. People say, well, his humanity died and his God didn't. I don't know. They laid a dead body in the tomb. He died. Why did he die? For the transgression of my people was he stricken. For God's elect, the suffering Savior, 
And Philip, fifthly, could have told this eunuch about the sinless Savior. Look at verse 9. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. That word because should be translated though. He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. He died with the wicked between two thieves. He borrowed the tomb of a rich man. Henry C. borrowed it because he wasn't going to need it for long. He just borrowed it. Though he had done no violence, he was perfect. The Lord Jesus never committed a sin. He was perfect in thought, word, and deed, perfectly righteous. Yet, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Now, why did the Father find pleasure in tormenting his son? Savannah just got back from visiting my brother and sister-in-law, and they're a new baby. Was she 10 months old? I don't know how old she is. My brother is saying he's already had to smack her hand, tell her no, smack her hand. And he said, I find no pleasure in that. He says, it's awful. It's awful. We parents understand that. I never found pleasure in disciplining my children. Never. The Father, the Father, the eternal, heavenly Father took pleasure in tormenting his sons. Why? Because his son was made to be sin. And when Christ became sin, when he became guilty, he became loathsome to his father. And the father took holy, righteous pleasure in punishing his son for the sins that were imputed to him. Now, this is no game. This is real. The Father took pleasure. They didn't play a game. They weren't playing play-like. They weren't pretending. He killed His Son for sins that were imputed to Him. He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And Philip, sixthly, could have told this eunuch about the sovereign Savior. Now, He's sovereign. Like I said a minute ago, at every moment from the time of his mock trial, well, at every moment, always, he's in control. He's the sovereign Savior. He did not abdicate the throne as he hung on that cross. He's the sovereign Savior. Verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. The Father put his son to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see his seed. No doubt about it. He shall see his seed. Jim just read it. Who's that seed? <laughs> Who is that seed? It's his people. If then, what was it? I can't quote it now. Turn it over there real quick. If ye be Christ... Then are you Abraham's seed. You're the same seed that Isaiah is talking about here. And you're heirs according to the promise. That's who his seed is. It's his people. The people who've been born with the incorruptible seed. The word of God which liveth and abideth forever. Well, how can you know for sure? How can you know for sure these people are going to come to know Christ? How can you know sure? I mean, know for sure. Because he didn't stay dead. 
He rose again to ensure their salvation. He's going to call them to himself. He's going to give them life for everyone for whom he died. He's the sovereign Savior. His death shall prosper. He died to pay the sin debt of his people, and he rose again to ensure it. And his death shall prosper. One day, I'm going to die. And this, it's not going to prosper anything. All it's going to be is the failure of this flesh. The sinful flesh is going to return to the dust from which it was made. There's no prosperity in that. But the death of the Lord Jesus Christ shall prosper. It shall prosper unto the pleasure of the Lord. Well, what's his pleasure? What's he pleased to do? His pleasure is the salvation of his people. To populate glory with the people made just like his son. That's his pleasure, and the death of Christ guarantees it. He's a successful Savior. In verse 11, he shall see the travail of his soul, and he shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. This suffering Savior did not die in vain. He died in victory. And he didn't stay dead. He rose again because all the sin that was imputed to him is gone forever under his sin-atoning blood. And everyone, without exception, for whom Christ died, will be made perfectly righteous and enjoy eternity with him. He will see every... He suffered the travail of his soul. Birth pains for those children. He'll see every last one of them in glory. Every one of them. That word travail, you know full well, means birth pains. Now, you joyful mothers of children, you know about birth pains. And people say, well, you know, those birth pains are, are awful, but they're forgotten as soon as you get that baby. I sure hear a lot about women going through the valley of the shadow of death long after them babies are born. I don't know if it's completely forgotten. But it's worth it, isn't it. Worth every moment of it for that precious child that's laid in your arms. And so sadly, sometimes that baby's born, stillborn. It's something's wrong. There are no stillborn children in God's family. Our daughter Holly works in the NICU. The little baby's a pound or a pound and a half. There's no stillborn, and sometimes they don't, they die, they don't make it. There's no stillborn children in God's family. They all are born and grow to full faith and life in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how can you be so sure? How can you be so sure he's going to see the travail of his soul? There'll be no stillborn children. There'll be none lost or dropped on their head or something. For my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. And if he bore those iniquities away, like the scapegoat of old, bore those iniquities in the wilderness never to be seen again, then you can't die because what would kill you is gone. The iniquity is gone. He's the successful Savior. And eighth, Philip could have told him about the supreme Savior, the supremely victorious Savior. Verse 12, Therefore, Will I divide him a portion with the great, and he should divide the spoil with the strong, because he's poured out his soul into death. He was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Now, who are the great 
and the strong here he's talking about. We read that and we think, we're not talking about me. That didn't describe me. I'm not strong. I'm not great. Well, you're right. In yourself, you're not strong. And in yourself, you're not great. These people are nothing in themselves, but they've been made great. They've been made strong in the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything that God has is theirs. Not someday, right now. Everything God has for a sinner is yours if you believe the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he hath poured out his soul unto death. Because he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sins of many. And he made intercession for the transgressors. One of the most amazing statements to me in Scripture is our Lord hung on the cross. He made intercession for the transgressors. He said, Father, lay not this to their account. I wouldn't have done that. (laughs) I wouldn't have done that. God's ways are not our ways. And I'm so thankful. And right now, our Savior is at the right hand of the Father making intercession for the transgressors, for you and me. And aren't we glad? He's there. He's got something to plead. He can make intercession for the transgressors because he can plead his sacrifice for the transgressors. And the Father's pleased with it. Now, as much as I can make that fit in the time allotted, that's the gospel. And that message is worth believing. It's worth believing. And undoubtedly, Philip told the eunuch that a believer, someone who believes the Lord Jesus Christ, who believes the gospel of salvation through the substitutionary death of the suffering, victorious Savior, will confess Christ, will identify with him, and he does that through believer's baptism. And baptism is a picture. It's a type. It's a picture. How we, a believer, identifies with Christ. When Christ died, he died for my sins. I know he died for the multitude of sins, the sins of people, a number that no man can number. But when he died, I know this, he died for my sins. He, my sin, my sins nailed him to the tree, and he died for my sins. When he died, I died in him. I, as my representative, when he died, I died. When he was buried, I was buried in him as my representative. And when he arose, I arose to newness of life in him, in my representative. Now look back at Acts chapter 8. That could have been the outline, some of the things that Philip preached to this eunuch. And in verse 36 of Acts chapter 8, And as they went on their way, they came into a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here's water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Now, Bless this man's heart. I just, he said, what doth hinder me? That's the title of the message. What, doth, what hinders me to be baptized? This man's a eunuch, an Ethiopian eunuch. 
He'd been to Jerusalem for the worship. You can rest assured of this. When he got to Jerusalem, that man was a second-class citizen. He's a Gentile. He can't go into the temple. He can go into a certain gate. He can go into the outer court, you know, the Gentiles, but no further. He tried to go in further. They stopped him. No, you can't come in here. He's a second-class citizen. Well, maybe he thinks the gospel is the same way. What, what would hinder me? Yeah. There are no second-class citizens in God's family. Nothing hinders you. Absolutely nothing. The only fence around baptism is this. Do you believe? Do you believe? It's believer's baptism. If you believe, not only may you be baptized, you must be baptized. That's his commandment. And when you obey the first commandment, then you can go on. And he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He believed that message of the suffering Savior and they commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went down into the water and he was baptized. Now what happened to that eunuch? After he left, you know, they, after they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip and the eunuch saw him no more. He never saw Philip again. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus. 20-some miles away, passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. What happened to that unit? I have no idea. None whatsoever. Well, what did he do when he got home? I have no idea. But here's what I know. He went on his way rejoicing in God his Savior. He went on his way with Christ in his heart and the Word of God in his hand. How precious do you reckon that word of God was to him? Oh, it was precious. Reckon he found his way to get his hand on some more of them scrolls? I bet he did. I bet he did. And I'm sure of this. His worship continued. It continued. He had the word. He didn't have Philip anymore. I don't know. If the Lord sent him a preacher, Gil has a guest that maybe the Lord made this man a preacher. I have no idea. But his worship did not stop when Philip was carried away. It didn't. He was not constantly looking back to that experience. Remember that time I got baptized? He's telling those fellows who were with him in the chair. Remember that time I got baptized? That fellow just appeared out of nowhere in the wilderness and I got baptized? He wasn't constantly looking back to that. He was looking to Christ. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That's who he was looking to. And like I said a minute ago, now he can go forward. He obeyed the first commandment, and now he can go forward. And this afternoon, Emily's going to do the same thing. By God's grace, this is the way a believer confesses Christ publicly, identifying with him, his person, and his work. It's a special day. It's a day of God's grace. I told Connie, the sun came up this morning. It's still a day of grace. It's still a day of grace. And Lord willing, we'll keep preaching it till he returns, won't we? All right. Well, the Lord bless you.